Whew, man, I was starting to get worried there. If you remember, I started off this whole thing by talking about how I don't actually find Season 1 to be all that bad. And the last ten or so episodes have been really challenging that assertion. Thank God we're finally have an episode that I legitimately enjoyed. Holy crap. Like, this was just, this was just fun. Um, I've made it a point to not read, watch, listen to Will Wheaton's reviews of TNG. I know he's done them. I know they're quite famous. You know, it's Will Wheaton, for God's sakes. Um, I know most people have probably seen or watched or read or whatever his reviews. But I don't... I usually try to avoid other people's reviews because I want to avoid uh, basically external bias, you know, influencing my decisions or opinions and whatnot. But I do have to say... <laughs> uh, I noticed, because one of the first places I check is Memory Alpha, in the Memory Alpha listing for this episode, it actually went out of its way to mention Mr. Wheaton's uh, review series and talk about how he even thought this was a good episode. And I find that kind of funny, um, especially since at the time I was like, well, that's weird. I wonder why he keeps referring to us on the crew. And then, oh, right, he's actually in this episode. I forgot he was in this episode. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, before we go too much further, I want to talk about a couple of things behind the scenes. Uh, first of all, I love the voice Brent Spiner does in this episode. Hey, boss. Come on. He's sleeping with the fishes. You know, I, I can't quite do it the way Spiner does it, but he does a really good job of it. I liked it, and I thought it was enjoyable. Um, <clears throat> it's also funny to me because Data clearly... This is some good construction, and this is actually some some genuine character development for Data, of all people. He's already shown his interest in Sherlock Holmes, and I've already explained why I find that to be logical and sense-making, the idea of all that. You know, I already talked about that in a previous episode. So, as of now, Data automatically associates Sherlock Holmes with good things, right? I mean, that makes sense, right? So... Data is talking about this, you know, Dixon Holmes, uh, Dixon Hill, excuse me, series, and, you know, Picard's fascination with it. And obviously Data does hold Picard with some level of reverence, even at this point in history. So he values his opinion and respects it. And then Geordi, who is also his friend, at, even at this point, makes the comment of relating it to Holmes, to Sherlock. So Data puts these two things together and says, I'm interested in those two things. I want to try to see if I'm interested in this thing reads the whole works, and, lo and behold, finds it interesting, finds it engaging, and, and, and wants to get into it. And so he basically throws himself into the role, reading up all the backstory, but in addition, actually behaving in character pretty much the entire time, with arguably one or two real exceptions, and even those are all when things have gotten serious, as opposed to just playing on the holodeck. Uh, and I like that. I like that presentation. I like that development of him. It makes Data more interesting and less irritating. And I, I know that sounds like a weird thing to say because Data's such a beloved character, but for several of Season 1's episodes, Data hasn't been particularly interesting. He's been irritating. Moving on. Next thing I want to talk about is... Gosh, what do I want to talk about? Let's talk about uh, Tracy Torme. So... Tracy Torme was one of the original writers involved with TNG. He was one of the early people. Um, he did several episodes, of which I think about two of which were actually decent, my opinion. The third one was okay. Uh, this is one of them, obviously. The other decent one is Conspiracy. But 
I want to mention three episodes that this gentleman has worked on as a writer. Haven, yes, the one we just covered, which I despised from a writing perspective. Royale, an episode that, at least I haven't covered yet, but from memory, is a terrible episode that I despised from a writing perspective. And Manhunt, a terrible episode that I despised from memory with bad writing. You, you sensing a trend here? Thing is, I don't know what to make of Torme. He's done several things over his years, and he may just be one of those authors that just hit or misses, you know? Like, sometimes he just needs to crank out a script, and sometimes he puts out a good one. Maybe that's just how this works. I don't know. But it's worth noting that several of the, shall we say, hallmarks of Torme's writing are still in this episode, even though I enjoy it, and I really do. I did like this episode. This was a treat to go through. But it may be a little bit biased, because I also did the Haven episode today. So, you know, from my perspective, I went straight from Haven into the Big Goodbye. So a little bit of a thing there. But nevertheless, uh, I did enjoy this episode. But even this episode has some hallmarks of his not-really-thinking-it-out writing style. And I will talk about those later as they come up. I also want to mention that this episode was originally designed to come out uh, pretty much immediately after 11001001 a.k.a. the episode in which the holodecks get upgraded. Now, I'm actually not going to talk about that here. That's a whole other topic that I'm, I, have, I have had planned for years at this point. I've planned to talk about the episode 11001 for literally years as I've been building up to this rumination series uh, because there's stuff to talk about there. But it is relevant to note because one of the big things that episode did, which I will mention in very brief here, is upgraded the holodecks. In fact, if you're paying attention, right at the beginning, Troy has almost a throwaway, throwaway line about the holodecks being upgraded. Maybe you should go try them out. And, and Picard being like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Just pointing it out. It does make a lot of the events of this episode make a lot more sense if you consider it in that narrative flow. Next thing I want to mention is that this is our first holodeck episode. No, seriously. It was in Encounter at Farpoint, it was in Code of Honor, it was in Haven, uh, and I believe that's it. But this is our first holodeck episode. Now, let's divorce ourselves for a moment from, what, 20 years? Uh, 25, God, it's actually, we're at the 30-year range almost, aren't we? 30-ish years of fiction and, and development in our culture, in science fiction, and in Star Trek in particular. If you really sit back and try to divorce yourself from all of that baggage, you can see why so much of this episode was such a big deal, especially at the time. As I've talked about before, the very idea of a holodeck in a fictional show is ruddy brilliant. It's one of the smartest things I've ever seen the developers and designers of Star Trek do, right up there with the transporter because, and, and the, the view screen. Those three inventions were all done for out-of-character reasons that helped to service in-character storytelling. So, I'm with it. I love it. I, I've already talked about this, so I'm not going to rehash myself too much. And, obviously, this is a great decision because they already have all these sets. I mean, this was actually done on a pre... This episode was done on a pre-existing Paramount set that they had for this kind of events and equipment. So, yay, we save money, and we get to do a decent show. And to be blunt, I think the fact that they did this on pre-existing sets 
helps part of why this episode feels less amateur than a lot of the previous ones have. Remember, as I talked about before, Season 1 had really, really bad budget issues. Not going over budget. They were actually very under budget. That's the problem. Because they were being forced to be under budget because there were issues with the network at the time. So, you know, more or less shoestring budget for the vast majority of season one. That wouldn't, that didn't change until season two started coming into it. And even that had some issues, which we'll cover when we get there. So the fact that they had professional sets that were done well in advance and with more money than TNG usually had, it kind of showed, in my opinion. And they brought in, and because they saved so much money on that, they were able to bring in more extras. Did you notice that, by the way? I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't, because it's such a minor thing. But they bring in more extras, and more extras with speaking roles, than they normally do in TNG, up to this point in time at least. So that, and, and that helps to kind of flesh out the overall feel of the holodeck program, and as such, our enjoyment of the episode itself. Imagine for a moment if this had been done in typical Season 1 TNG fashion, and instead the only characters we interact with on the holodeck are uh, McNary... Red Block, and maybe the woman, and that's like it, those three characters. But instead we see the uh, the maid, who's, you know, mopping. We see the receptionist, she actually has a speaking line. We see the woman, of course, in question. Uh, the guy on the street selling papers, I forget his actor's name, forgive me, he actually shows up in DS9 as well, he's a great actor, I love him. Um, well, he's not a great actor, I'm sorry, I'm over-exaggerating. I enjoy him a lot as an actor, that's a more accurate statement. Um... Then we've got McNary, of course, major side character. The other cop, the head cop, who's like, he gets, to, he gets to come into this. Uh, we've got like six or seven people in the station, including the woman that Crusher kind of acts off of, and the guy who tries to hit on her. Uh, then we've got Red Block himself, the crazy guy, and the crazy guy's goon, who I don't actually think has any lines. I'm not sure about that, but nevertheless, you see what I'm getting at here? The usage of extras here, this is something I've talked about so much when it comes to Trek in particular and television in general. Proper usage of extras is in integral to proper television, in my opinion. I really do genuinely believe that. And as I've been analyzing more and more television, I've, I've come to believe this more and more. And this episode helps to highlight my point. Eject almost all of those characters and it will feel like a bad stage play, at least in terms of how empty and devoid it will feel. Moving on. So, obviously, the holodeck stuff, great idea. Um, you know, a wonderful presentation there. I've already talked about this before, but as I've said before, uh, I've often, in fact, I've always believed that the holodeck has a com combination of replicator technology and force field projection. In other words, holograms, technology. Uh, I use the food example, but there's actually a literal example in this episode. The lipstick on Dixon Hill's uh, cheek that just stays there. I don't think it's that hard for an algorithm to state this thing is going to interact physically with what is designated a real person. Therefore, on the fly, quickly replicate some lipstick. So putting actual physical lipstick onto the projected force field of the hologram of the woman so that when she kisses him, that little bit of, of matter, physical matter, stays on his cheek. I mean, that, that doesn't sound particularly out of bounds or complicated or anything. In fact, I'd be amazed if they weren't as future thinking to, to process that kind of thing. We have programs that did, can do that kind of thinking today. Never mind the sort of AI level that the, the, the Star Trek holodecks tend to have. But I'm getting off topic a little bit. 
One other really big thing I want to point out is that this episode has no perception filter. Now, I've talked about this concept before over on the Voyager stuff, but in the off chance you haven't heard me talk about it, the perception filter is, is in my opinion, one of the most important aspects of the holodeck and pretty much how the holodeck can really work. It's how Jean-Luc Picard can walk on board and everyone automatically sees him as Dixon, as Dix, as Dixon Hill. Now, what's funny is you're like, well, wait, but they do that in the episode. And you're right. That's why this is, that's why I'm commenting on this, because they obviously do have a perception filter. They just see Picard as Mr. Hill, straight one to one. But what's weird about that is then they see that he's out of uniform, or I should say in uniform, that he's not in his usual outfit. And they see Data as being unusual with the white, you know, the white skin and the, the pale yellow eyes and all that. Things like that is this kind of stuff uh, perception filters usually catch. Now, I feel that this is actually in character, believe it or not. I don't think this is a... Well, okay, let me rephrase this. Obviously, most things in fiction can be explained away, right? Lord knows we as Trek fans are probably pretty used to the idea of explaining away concepts when it comes to Star Trek because, let's face it, the writers didn't always think the stuff out and they usually didn't coordinate with each other. However, for my personal self, I've always felt that there's kind of a... Think of it like a bubble. It's it's the same thing as pushing the bubble of, of suspension of disbelief. You know, you can bend it, you can press it, but it's not until it bursts that it's a problem. And, of course, that's going to vary based on person to person. But for me, things that can easily and smoothly be explained away in a way that makes sense in canon, that I'm cool with. It's when you have to really start twisting things and, and basically inventing thoughts that's like, ah, oh, really? In this case... It seems obvious that the inclusion of one perception filter that was basically built into the program from the get-go, a.k.a. person-initiating program, equals Dixon Hill, and yet no other passive perception filters, makes sense to me. And here's the biggest reason why. Because it's emphasized many times, especially in this episode, that holodecks are new. This is actually something that will also come up in 11001001. The idea that the holodeck is a fairly new invention, that the Enterprise-D might actually be one of, one of the first ships out there in service that actually has functional holodecks on board. And so it makes sense that this is the kind of a developing technology, that they're make, working this out, because, speaking from a programming perspective, replace value with value, a.k.a. Picard equals Dixon Hill, is easy. A more passive scanning protocol to try and pick up on things that it can't anticipate and then try to replace those with existing variables, that's more complex. That's going to be something that's a lot harder to pull off. For example, the uniform. You know, hang on, someone might walk on with a uniform. Well, hang on, let me think about this. Okay, there we go. That's that's something that shouldn't fit in, so I need to have them mentally equate that he's just wearing a normal outfit. Boom, done. Same thing with Data, or any alien, actually. Uh, the idea that, you know, a Vulcan might show up, or an Andorian, or a Klingon, or whatever. It's like, hang on, we need to mentally equate this to something else so that the people don't freak out in the period piece. In other words, that also would require there to be some kind of algorithm or function that's detecting whether or not alien or modern things would not be accepted in this particular program. I mean, that's obvious to say with something like Dixon Hill. What if they run something around, say, the, the year 2000 or the year 2050, you know? 
it would need to have some kind of checking program to say, did were Vulcans a thing within this? And this is just for real-life historical stuff. What about fictional stuff? You know, what if... Let me use a, a completely made-up example. What if you ran Warcraft, okay? Just the Warcraft setting in a holodeck, okay? And a Vulcan showed up. So, obviously, the, the, the computer would then need to check, okay, do Vulcans exist in this program? And obviously the answer would be no once it finishes checking. So it's like, okay, I need to equate that Vulcan to something else. And if the algorithm, this algorithm is sufficiently advanced, which, let's be honest, by at least by Voyager's time, it certainly is, then at that point it would be like, well, we'll just make it so that that person is now a high elf. Assuming no one does anything deliberately. This is my whole point, by the way. Obviously, walking into the holodeck, you can say, uh, computer... Transplant data with X character, um, Mr. Tuvok with Y character, and Beverly Crusher with C character. And then it could just do that because it's been told to. That's easy. That's easy programming right there. Where it becomes more complex and complicated is the program doing it on its own. Like the examples I'm mentioning. Anyways, forgive me for going off on this. I just, I really find the holodeck very fascinating. Um, this is a good time to mention, though, that this is also the first holodeck malfunction episode. Uh, something that will become a significant cliche to the point of being a joke throughout the course of TNG. And, in fact, a holodeck malfunctions episode will also be a semi-recurring feature over on Voyager. <sighs> because, of course, it will. Thankfully, they didn't do that too much on DS9. Now... <sighs> I'm sorry, I still haven't even started talking about the episode, so forgive me for going off yet again. I understand the point of the Holodeck Malfunctions episode. I do. It's really simple. We want to tell this story, but some people look at that and say, well, there's no, there's no conflict. You know, if this episode just had the Dixon Hill scenario, people would be like, well, there's no drama, there's no tension. Well, that's because you're thinking too small. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to say that. Professionally, and in, in my personal opinion, I think that if you as a writer look at the situation and say, well, where's the drama? Then you're looking in the wrong direction. Because you are assuming that drama must equal threat. And yes, this is, the, this is another thing I'm going to bring up here. I, I just, just remember that in the back of your mind. I'm going to finish talking about the writing thing, then I'll talk about that thing, okay? Use it to do something. Use it to, to, to learn more about our characters. Use it to help character arcs go forward. Use it to learn more about the setting. Use it to learn more about the theme of the episode, or the core element of what's going on in the episode. Do something with it. But too often, writers get locked into that mentality of there has to be a threat. There has to be some kind of danger. And that leads me to the point I just put aside here. And that is the A-B plot Star Trek formula. Now... Again, I don't know how many of you watching watched my Voyager stuff and or my Babylon 5 stuff, but I have railed against the A-B plot formula thing many times. Now, to rehash really quickly, because some of you might just be watching the TNG stuff, I'm not automatically against the A-B plot formula. Uh, it's not inherently a bad thing. It is my opinion, however, that when you have to stick to a formulaic approach to storytelling, you're going to have some problems. Oh, I should probably explain what the A-B plot thing means. Um, which one is which varies, but basically you've got your A plot, which is like your primary plot, and then your B plot, which is your secondary plot. But that's not what I mean by the A-B plot formula. The A-B plot formula is you have a character-centric plot, 
and then you have a thread of the week plot. This is the Star Trek format right here, and it does it a lot. And I don't remember how the original series is structured right now. I haven't actually rewatched the original series in several years, so I can't speak to that. But I can tell you that this is the first episode in TNG that began that process, that, that problem. Because we've got two plots here. The Haradan plot and the, the Holodeck plot. Now, the Holodeck plot is interesting and engaging and fun, and the actors were clearly enjoying their roles. And I've often said this, when an actor enjoys presenting whatever they're doing, you know, in a theater or in a voice acting or in a movie or in a television show or whatever, when the actor really enjoys it, their performance is better. And bluntly, I think that's true here. I think the actors really were having the fun, and it really showed in their performance. Uh, and this is backed up by Wheaton, actually, in this particular case. So, the Dixon Hill plot is fantastic, but the threat of the weak, weak plot is there for no freaking reason, basically. Like, it's just, we've got this threat of the week. Okay. Why? What does the threat of the week do other than be a threat? Other than add drama. That, it's, it's actually, in, in television, this is usually referred to as a ticking clock. You must solve X by this time or else. Really? I was really enjoying this episode, and then the Haradan stuff keeps getting in the way. And I will point out two major points at which the Haradan plot actively interferes with my enjoyment of this episode. But... Let's go ahead and move on and finally actually talk about the episode. So we start off with a nice little piece between Troy and Picard, trying to learn the Haradan language. You know. Um, and then he, he talks about how ridiculous of a language it is. And Troy says, well, you spell knife with a K. And that actually made me grin. It really did. Because... I, for those of you not aware, I've actually been doing a lot of work for the better part of the last, like, six months now to finally build the Imperial language, something I've been wanting to do for years now. And in studying the actual in-depth breadth of language structure, English is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I know English, obviously. I was born with it. I, I've grown up with it. You get used to it after a while, but when you really sit back and look at it, English is a really ridiculous language. So... I just that just kind of made me grin a little bit and helped to add to the the flavor of the scene. So Picard goes on board, and you know we on board. He goes into the Dixon Hill scenario, and there's the secretary there. She's actually the same actress who plays his secretary in future episodes, by the way. Nice little touch. And he, you know he meets his client, who's like, "You're gonna need to do this for me." And it's it's all just so wonderfully noir. Like, I can't help but grin. It's incredibly cliched, but I'm pretty sure that is actually the point. And again, this is a great example of Flash Gordon effect, which I would normally describe here, but the Lorium's page is done, so you can go look it up there if you want to. So, she comes on board, they talk, start talking about that, and I want to talk about Dennis McCarthy really quick, because... Dennis McCarthy is someone who generally, I don't like his music. In fact, I actually just talked about this last episode with regards to Haven. He's also pretty much one of the wallpaper musicians that I've railed about in T uh, late TNG, Voyager, 
Enterprise and much of DS9. You know, that wallpaper background music that was deliberately designed to not draw attention to itself, which I don't enjoy personally. But I've already talked about that. I'm not going to get into that. What I'm going to say is I like what McCarthy does here. I like how a lot of the scenes have music that helps to elevate the tone of it past what it otherwise would be, which, in my opinion, is how music should be used in a fictional work. And, and to give you a direct example of what I'm talking about, Picard, when he goes to the meeting room to discuss everything with them, the music as he's leaving and the music as he's going to there is just this sense of wonderment. This again goes back to the whole holodecks are new thing. This is probably Picard's first real experience on a holodeck. I mean, he might have gone on board for training purposes, or to test it out, or to inspect it, or whatever. But this is the first time he has gone and played, let's, let's just call it what it is, on the holodeck. And I think that's kind of awesome. And the way he is so enthralled with it is kind of awesome. So I, I totally get that, and I, I enjoy that sense of it as he's explaining it. We also see some tiny little good character tidbits here. He's, he's got this meeting with all the senior staff, and he's just gushing about the holodeck and how it works, and how much fun it was, and how many things they went through, and oh my god, and then there was this, and then, oh my god, and it felt real, and I looked out and I saw a whole city block of automobiles, and it was just fantastic. And I like that. Now, <laughs> I, I do want to say a couple other things really quick. Uh, first of all, I really like, uh, well, I shouldn't say that that way. Uh, it's true. I like what they did with Crusher in this episode for the most part, uh, with a couple of exceptions I'll mention later. So Beverly gets up and, you know, wipes the lipstick off of him. Now that's a relevant point because that means he pretty much went from the holodeck to the meeting room. No attempt to clean himself up or anything like that. So she wipes the lipstick off and he invites her to go with him. Now, watch Gates McFadden's face. It's very clear, based on how this is being said, that she's she likes the idea. Like, you can almost see her heart start to race a little bit. Like, oh. Like, basically, Picard just asked her out on a date. Then he invites Waylon on board as well. I keep saying on board. To the holodeck as well. In other words, the historian I mentioned earlier. And then her face just goes rock solid. Like, all of a sudden, she, she just locks that smile in face and says, Yep, this is fine. It's 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 little subtle touches like that that are why I tend to like Gates McFadden as an actress. She knows how to act with her face and with her with her movements. Great theatrical actress in general. Um, so she, you you just see all this presented here in her in her body posture and her movements. Um, so what's another little funny part there is that right uh, Picard is talking about this whole thing. I'm pretty sure this is a joke it's to some extent or another, but then he mentions how the kiss, specifically the kiss, felt so real. The camera then immediately cuts to Riker, who has been lounging back. I'm not going to do it, because I don't actually have enough room here, but he's been, like, reclined back in his chair. And, the, and then it cuts to Riker, and then he just... It, it sits up with, with an interested face, and I'm like, wow! <laughs> I guess I know what Riker's going to be trying out next time he's got holiday time. <laughs> Don't worry. I I know, unfortunately, that I have to talk about holodeck sex in the future. I don't want to, but I will have to. Don't worry. I know the exact episodes I plan to talk about that. So, 
here's the here's the weird thing though. This is probably the first time that the Haradan plot actually irritated me. If it was just oh Picard's th- you know stressed because of this Haradan thing, and that was the end of it, I would be okay with it. But then. He says, yes, well, let's talk about the Haradan thing. That's the actual point of this meeting, after all. I didn't just gather you here to talk about the holodeck. Okay. So then they have one of the stupidest, most badly written meetings I've seen in fiction. It's such a weird thing to go straight from what is otherwise an excellent character dynamic between multiple characters and some great character moments to suddenly shift into bad writing. Just, I'm sorry, bad writing. I want you to picture this, okay? Uh, I shouldn't use that example. People are going to make fun. Let's say you are a senator of a republic, okay? And you have been called forward into the Senate Hall in order to talk and discuss. And you're brought in, and the guy is talking about this great new Xbox game. And everyone's on board, and it's awesome. And, and it's not out of place. Everyone's really like, oh, wow, and did you do this? And how was the sound design? Oh, it was fantastic. Okay, well, let's actually talk about what we're here to talk about. So... <clears throat> As you know, there's these people over here. I'm just going to use like a one-to-one parallel. There's this other country, and they're being very sticklers about this. This is the first time they've reached out to us in years. We need to do everything just right. Now, keep in mind, you know this already. You've known this for some time, because this has been an active issue that this is not the first time this is coming up. Then, one of the other senators at your meeting says, Oh, yes, and as you know... I don't think they literally say, as you know, in the meeting, but so it's not literally the worst writing I could see, but it's like one step away from it, because then they they all just say, they exposit. They just say things that all of them should already know. It's almost a textbook example of, as you know, the concept. And nothing is discussed. At no point do they say, here's our backup plan, what should we do in this circumstance, what do you think about such and such. You know, there's no discussion. There's no debate. There's no agreement. There's not even any decision-making. It's not a meeting. It's a, all right, everyone get together. As you know, we're working on a project. All right, head out. And that's basically what is conveyed in that. And that's such a weird shift. In fact, I have a note here where I originally wrote down that Picard called a meeting just to gush about the holodeck, and then the Haradan thing showed up right at the end. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Apparently, they were actually there to talk about something that they all already know about. What? <laughs> uh. Very, very Tracy Torme, by the way, that scene I just mentioned. Um, so, let's talk about the Haradans, okay? Let, let's talk about them. So, obviously, they were supposed to be this wasp, hive mind, evil, deadly, doom space species, right? Um, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now, uh, the Haradans are only mentioned once ever after this point. Now that's important for what I'm going to discuss, but I want you to keep that in mind. They're only even mentioned once ever, and it's in the episode uh, Samaritan Snare. Okay? That's it. So, the Haradans apparently were able to do something horrible, they never say what, they never explain what, to either the captain or the ship that previously was sent out to to initiate contact with them. Which already kind of raises an eyebrow, because I want you to picture just for a moment that whatever country you live in has decided to reach out to a neighboring country, and the neighboring country says, oh, 
you mispronounced the N on that, and then horribly butchers the diplomat you just sent after them. And then nobody ever really talks about that again, because everyone's apparently just cool with that kind of thing. I swear to God, Star Trek writers do not understand politics at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> they don't understand a lot of things, as, as we will discuss as we go throughout this, regardless. So other than the obvious political faux pas of whatever the hell they did to the previous captain and or ship, then we add the fact there's this one line tossed out there that says the Haradans are strategically important to the Federation. Okay, why? This is another Tracy Torme style of writing. He has a tendency to basically say, this is important. We care about this. Um, this matters. And never put any actual thought or reason into why or how. Now, obviously not every tiny little detail needs to be thought out, especially when it comes to an episodic series like this. But, at the same time, if you apply a little bit of logic and reason to the situation and then find out, well, hang on, this doesn't really feel like it fits here, then maybe the writer should have actually spent some time trying to come up with a reason other than just saying, no, no, it's cool, trust us, trust us. Don't think about it. Do, don't think about it. This is not the plot point you're looking for. Because that's how the Haradans are presented. As a hand wave. They're a threat of the weak. And that is the actual point I'm building up to. This is so typical of many aspects of Star Trek in general, but most notably early TNG. This this also happened over on Enterprise. This also happened on Voyager. Pretty sure this happened on DS9 as well. And this definitely happened on the original series. It boils down to a cool concept that isn't fleshed out or discussed at all. I've talked about this before. In fact, I will be talking about this again when we get to the Crystalline Entity in, I think, next episode with Data Lore. It's a, it's a cool concept, but you got to think about cool concepts to make them fit in your setting. Otherwise, you're just the frickin' Twilight Zone, which doesn't have to make sense. And it, that's the biggest argument that I've ever heard leveled at this, by the way. And I just want to address this. I very ser seriously doubt anyone who has watched this far into the series or this episode is going to level that argument at me. But I want to address it nonetheless because it's a dumb argument. If the argument is, you should just turn off your brain to enjoy this, or you, it's not meant to be thought about, or it's not supposed to make sense, or it doesn't have to make sense, then all I'm hearing is, so you just kind of want to have some shiny lights and that's it. I don't know about you guys, but I watch Star Trek for interesting ideas, a fleshed out, interesting dynamic between characters, a world that I love and want to see more of, and the expansion of that setting into the future. As much as I am a continuity hound, you might be surprised that I enjoy TNG as much as I do. And, of course, a lot of that is based on the characters. But as I've said many times, TNG is really big about setting continuity. The events of an episode tend to matter in future episodes. Not always. So I kind of find it jarring when you have something like the Haradans, who, again, basically never come up again. They're just another threat of the weak, who apparently are sufficiently powerful or whatever. I mean, they send a sensor probe which messes with the Enterprise. And in fact, disables the holodeck, which is really stupid, but I'm having an end to that. Because it disables the holodeck in a really, really, really precise way. 
these these powerful super doom alien wasp things who are huge sticklers about protocol and apparently are strategically important to the Federation for whatever goddamn reason are never relevant ever again. They might as well have never existed. And that's my point. Also, while I'm on the subject, this is yet another example of an alien race which we have to bow and scrape to fulfill whatever tiny little thing that they happen to demand of us, because apparently that's how the Federation does diplomacy in this era. I've already talked about that many times. I'm not going to rehash the point again. I'm just bringing up that this is yet another example of this in Season 1 TNG. Moving on. So! So the Hurans do their thing. Blah, blah, blah. Um, they get stuck in the holodeck. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a couple of things here really quick. First of all, one thing that Star Trek does that is just a pet peeve is the lack of knowledge about the past. Let me explain what I mean by that really quick. A pet peeve is something that isn't actually irksome or bothersome. It just bothers me personally. That's different from an actual peeve. You know, if I have an actual issue with something, it's because you're doing something actually, you know, significantly wrong that's negatively affecting something. You know, me or the work or another person or whatever. A pet peeve is something that I don't really have a big reason to be upset about, but it still upsets me. Make sense? Um... Uh, I, I believe Sci-Fi Debris even has a category for it. He calls it uh, Ancient Chinese Secret, huh? Which you may have heard him mention a few times. It's the idea that apparently, you know, we, we, we either refer to things from the present as ancient or that we have no idea how they work. Like, oh my god, what's an automobile? What is that? Now, sometimes this can work out. But here's, there's a couple examples that just kind of make me tilt my head. First of all, and forgive me, but Gates McFadden looks amazing in that outfit, with the exception of the excess amount of makeup she had on. Keep that in mind, though. Um, I just wanted to say that really quick. I have never been quiet about the fact that I had a huge crush on Gates McFadden when I was younger, because she's an extremely attractive woman who is awesome and uh, is a great actress, so whatever. But in addition to that, uh, she there's a scene where she's she's sitting there in the in the police station waiting for Picard to be done and she sees the other woman uh, start to do makeup stuff and so she pulls out her own makeup thing now credit to Gates McFadden what she's doing is acting like she doesn't know what makeup is without saying a single word of dialogue she conveys this is something I'm not familiar with and I'm trying to adapt to it. You know, the, the typical fish-out-of-water portrayal. So she does a good job of that. Problem is, you remember what I just mentioned about how she has a lot of noticeable makeup on? Right? I'm pretty sure Beverly Crusher knows what makeup is. Because she's wearing some. Now, yes, it's probably applied in a different way in the future, but you can't tell me that she can't have pulled out the makeup thing that she had on her that she brought with her onto the holodeck and somehow be like, oh, I don't know how to use this thing. Oh, let me just... Oh, whoop, whoop. Uh, very Torme. Now, the thing is, though, I've been bashing Torme, but I want to make it clear that I kind of praise him as well. He does know how to do certain types of work. Uh, most notably, character interaction is something Torme is actually really good at. Um, and the dynamic between characters and what I would normally refer to as NPCs, you know, guest stars, is another thing he's pretty good at. Uh, the Royale even had some pretty decent scenes about that. And so did Conspiracy, for that matter. 
A good example of what I'm talking about here, in addition to the ones I've already given, is shortly after the makeup scene, there's a scene where there's this guy who's... <laughs> well, I mean, you know, looking at her like a guy in the 40s probably would, let's just say that as bluntly as possible, a way that wouldn't really be acceptable nowadays. But he's looking at her and he's like, hey, dollface. And he just starts blatantly and brazenly flirting with her. That's not the good part. The good part is the way she portrays off of him. Because what we have is Gates McFadden playing Beverly Crusher, playing a character in a holodeck. And that's actually harder to do than it sounds. As an actor, playing a character playing a character is kind of tricky. Because you can't just play... The most, the most logical thing that most actors do is jump to playing the character rather than playing the character play the character, for obvious reasons. But she manages to come across as Beverly Crusher who is trying to fit the role. And then, of course, there's that wonderful little gag where the guy offers her a stick of gum and she eats it and swallows it, obviously having physical problems doing so. And I'm just sitting here like, yes! That's what the kind of stuff Torme tends to be good at. So anyways. Then, uh, the holodeck malfunctions, of course. They're stuck in there. They're Now, here's the thing. If the Haradan plot didn't exist... This wouldn't bother me. But they all act like they're completely powerless to get them out of the holodeck. Okay, just off the top of my head, you have transporters, right? Right? That's a thing? We know site-to-site beaming exists in TNG. That's been established. I pointed that out, even. So, why can't you just beam them out? There's no force field in the way. Okay. I'm already, I've actually talked about this before, so I've already heard a counter-argument, and I have a counter-counter-argument prepared. Maybe they're having trouble distinguishing which ones are them in the mess of force fields and holograms and replicated matter. That's a stretch, in my opinion. If you're having trouble distinguishing that, then your transporters need way better sensors. But let's assume that's true. Okay, beam the whole thing out. You have cargo bays. Grab whatever's in the space of the holodeck at that point in time and just beam the whole damn thing out. Anybody who is not actually, and anything that is a holographic character will of course cease to exist immediately and the physical matter will just plop to the ground and the people will be like, oh, done. You also have transporters, separate independent transporters, I feel like pointing out, on the shuttles if it really became an issue. Okay, let's say this doesn't work for whatever reason. Drill through the wall. What? They can repair it. See, this is why the Haradan plot detracts from this. Because this is portrayed as a very serious, deadly situation. The Haradans have already demonstrated that they can mess with the Enterprise pretty much at will. That they are very touchy about things. That this is very important diplomatically because they're strategically important to the Federation. And that they can apparently do whatever they want to Federation ships with impunity. For whatever goddamn reason. So, all of that mess nevertheless presents a serious, immediate threat. So, yeah, drill through the wall! Just... There we go. Hey, come on out. Picard! Hey, hey! Let's go, let's go. Right? That's the problem with the Haradan plot. It presents such an immediate and such a present threat that it detracts from the moment because every time we cut back to the holodeck thing and every time we cut to them trying to establish how powerless the Enterprise crew are, I'm just thinking... If this is a really serious situation, why aren't you treating it as such? There's even a good moment with Wesley Crusher. I know! <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I, like I said, I'm not one of those people who hates Wesley Crusher. 
admittedly, because I like Will Wheaton. But there's there's some good stuff where Crusher and and again, this is actually well acted, good good character dynamic, as I mentioned. Crusher Crusher comes up and says, "Sir," and he's all nervous and he's all tense and he says, "I've I've I've you know I've I've." studied the holodeck protocols, and I know them inside and out, and blah, blah, blah. He's just trying to establish why he thinks he should be attached to it as well. Riker, who isn't really, whose head is in the, the this crisis of the situation, says, no, it's okay, Jordy's got this. And then it's Troy who has to point out the obvious, that Wesley's just worried about his mom and wants to help. That's when Riker's like, all right, come on, Wes. It's a nice little human moment. It helps to establish Wesley Crusher as an actual frickin' person. Arguably for the first time, really. We're, what, 11 episodes in now? 10? God, I've, I've lost track. And then Wes goes down, and he's really nervous. And there's another good character moment with Wes, where Jordy, nice and soothing, was like, Slow down, Wes. You can see something, you go right over it. And that little line of dialogue is is a wonderful way to establish, without being obvious or overt about it, just how much Wes is caring about this, just how much he's anxiously trying to get this thing to work. And, of course, Geordi is still being the engineer, despite being the helmsman. I swear I don't know what they were thinking about that. I, one of these days. Um, so that's some good stuff. <laughs> uh, so then... Oh, my God. So then Picard tries to smoke a cigarette. Um, I don't know how many of you out there are smokers uh, or, or or around smokers. Uh, I actually have the great fortune of being allergic to nicotine and cigarette smoke in general. So, never been an option for me. Thank God. Um, uh, I have nothing against smokers, by the way. I'm just, I have an addictive, uh, I suppose fixative is actually a better word, uh, personality. So I'd probably have issues with smoking if I actually started. That's what I mean by thank God. But I bring this up. Because I want you to imagine, like, that the kid's first puff. Like, oh, this is cool. And all the people, oh, God! Oh, God! <laughs> In fact, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think Kelvin and Hobbes did a thing about that, too. Because that's exactly what I thought about when Picard's like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll... <laughs> oh, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> uh, but then there's a scene, and this scene works surprisingly well. Because there's a scene where... Waylon and Crusher and Data and Picard are being held up by Tweak or whatever the hell his frickin' name is. The 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 psychopath uh, henchman. You know, there's always a psychopath henchman when it comes to these kind of mobster stories. And so they just keep playing along. And you can see, they keep, like, it keeps cutting back to the actors and they're just like, they're, they're grinning. Like, oh, this is so great. I'm being held up by this monster. Oh, this is great. This is fantastic. Oh, and then of course, Waylon, who's really throwing himself into the role, is like, yeah, all right. Give him the gun, man. Like, like, just basically reciting lines from it and loving it. And then he gets shot. And that's a great moment. He's like, but it's not real. Um, funnily enough, I was paying close attention this time around. No mention of safety protocols is actually made, or the, or the holodeck safeties, you know. Later on, those safeties are off would become an actual, unfortunately common situation in Star Trek. But obviously that's what's being portrayed here, that it's part of the holodeck malfunction, that the safeties aren't functioning. Now I bring that up because obviously the holodeck safety malfunction thing is so standard and normal and boring and cliche that at this point it is literally a joke but again i ask you divorce yourself from all that baggage picture you're sitting down and playing a video game right 
It's not that hard. I imagine most of you who are listening to this right now play video games or have at some point in your life. So you're sitting down and you're playing Wolfenstein 2. That's a game that came out recently. And you're going around killing Nazis in the face. Because we here at the Lore Runner are always in favor of killing Nazis in the face. Sorry, running joke. And uh, so you're... Blah, 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 blah. And then one of the Nazis shoot back, and then you feel this weird thing in your chest, and you look down, and you've just been shot. Your reaction to that would probably be absolute incredulity. And the way they portray it really gets across that. This is one of the reasons I regret the overuse of the holodeck malfunction story and the safeties are off story. Not just because it, it became a cliche, not just because of the fact that it was overdone, but the specific fact that it's the kind of thing that should be a big shocking moment. When you sit down to play Risk or uh, Chess or Tag with a bunch of other kids if you're young, or frickin', like, Nerf Ball or whatever, or any other video game, you don't expect to have physical, actual harm done to you as a consequence of that. That's not how that works. The shock of that and that moment should be a big deal. It should be this big, impacting thing. And it is here in this episode. And that's why I regret that, because I see now the potential that this could have had. If they had never done a safeties off holodeck story until, like, season five, and then all of a sudden it came up again, it would have that same shock appeal, that same impact as it did here, because it wasn't overdone. Instead, it gets to the point where people go onto the holodeck, and it has been jokingly said, in-universe even, I don't know why people even go on the holodeck with all the problems they have. You know? It became so normal that over in Voyager, there were several episodes. I'm not even kidding. There's several episodes where the holodeck malfunctions and the safeties are off, and nobody even treats it as if it's a threat, because it's just that normal, which is the exact opposite of how that should feel. So credit to the actor who plays Whaling. He does a great job of this, and he's just... It, and he holds up his hand with the blood, and he's just in shock. And Crusher's trying to take care of him. You know, doctor, no tools. By the way, credit to that point. I know that sounds weird. Um, as some of you may know, about half of my family, more than half really, but you know, is is medical profession has been since before I was born. And one of the things that's always been really messed up is. Under certain circumstances, and I have to stress that, because obviously there's exceptions to this, but bullet wound is a good example. A doctor without tools is really of no more help or assistance than any other person wishing to give comfort to the individual. Sure, they can do basic things like apply pressure and try to stop the bleeding, but that's basically it. A medical professional relies on their tools to really deal with serious damage and serious problems. And being freaking shot in the stomach certainly qualifies. So credit to that point. It would have been actually easy, as weird as this would sound, although this isn't Torme's style, to have him be shot and Crusher just kind of and make something work. Which she she did apparently, by all accounts, save his life. So credit where credit is due on that one, but still... So, then we get to another point. Now, here's the thing. I mentioned how the Harad, Harad, uh, bleh, Harada problem, the Haradan, the Haradrum <laughs> problem, 
really takes me out of this episode. But there's another thing that takes me out of it, too. Everything basically from that moment onwards. Because the moment a guy is actually shot, that should have been the sign to everyone involved that, okay, something is legitimately wrong, and we now have to deal with it like it's a real situation. That should have been the, all right, game time's over moment. Real-life equivalent, you're out playing football, or football, depending on which country you're from, and someone slips and breaks their leg. You don't just go back to keeping playing football, do you? You don't, you don't obey the rules of touch or interaction or not people not going on the field, do you? No! You get out there and you deal with the situation that just arose. That's how that works. And yet that's not what they do. Instead, what we have is some frankly insipid dialogue as Picard actually tries to convince them of the truth that they are a holodeck program. And if I may, why doesn't the computer recognize that, that characters in the program are trying to convince them that they're, they're characters in a program? Just, just a little question there, because obviously they can cognate the idea that there is something beyond, because that's what happens to Cyrus Redblock's character the moment that he sees the, the door and walks out into it, right? So, why can't the computer recognize, oh, they're trying to break character, and do something about that? Now again, early holodecks, new tech, maybe that's the explanation. But I would think that that would be one of the first safeties you put into a holodeck. Have the computer capable of recognizing when the people in the program are trying to say, no, this is a program, or we need to get out, or something. So that even if there's an issue literally closing the doors, the program can stop being deadly or dangerous as a fail-safe, as a backup. I mean, I'm sorry to once again quote O'Brien, but I just wouldn't feel safe without a secondary backup. <laughs> Anyways. So, th they should have treated this situation as serious, and they clearly don't. And I've got three big points to explain what I mean by that. First point, they're being held at gunpoint by two people. Mr. Tweak, whatever the hell his name was, and a nameless guy, okay? Now, that's a threat, absolutely and seriously, but not as big of one as you might think, especially if you actually have any freaking military training. Now, I know, Star Trek doesn't know what the hell they're doing with military, but still, I know what to do if someone points a gun at me. Although, granted, that's because of a, a Marine friend of mine who taught me about that. She, she taught me a whole bunch of stuff about that for self-defense purposes. Great, great stuff. I highly recommend it if you ever have time to take, you know, that kind of self, self-defense course. Um, so... <laughs> Point being, it is not that hard to disable someone who doesn't know what they're doing with the gun. And it, that's the important part, the doesn't know what they're doing part. You still run the risk of being shot, but you are now more in control of the situation, and that's the important part. And these guys, I'm sorry, I was watching, these guys have no idea what they're doing with a gun. Their attitude is, I can wave a gun around and you do what I say. And that's how they act the whole time. Like, there are several times where their guns just wander wherever. Nowhere near the people who they're actually trying to threaten. And where they get within literal arm's reach of these people, and they do nothing. Okay, pro tip. So, if you... Gun person, don't get right up in melee with the person. Don't do that. It's stupid. And it's way too easy to be disarmed that way. In fact, that tends to happen even in fiction. But moving on. So those are the, that's the first two points. They have no idea what they're doing with the gun. 
and they get way too close to people. You know what my third point is? Freaking data, who once again has already been established to be super fast and super strong and super smart for that matter. Now, you might think, well, you know, maybe he was just worried, blah, blah, blah. Except, at the end of the episode, he disables the guy with the gun. So even in the episode, even in just this episode, if none of the rest of Star Trek existed, Data had the capacity to overpower these people. He quickly and easily gets the gun from the guy, literally squeezes the end so it's no longer a problem, and then slugs him. <laughs> what? Ah. Uh. Why didn't people start taking this seriously? Then the exit appears. Now, I wrote down a timestamp. The exit appears at the 38 minutes and 40 second mark. It's going to be important later. So the exit appears. Now, this used to bug the crap out of me when I was a kid, because I didn't understand what the hell was going on. Let, let me explain. Um, so the whole episode... They've been doing this thing where Jordy and Wesley are right there at the thing trying to open the door, right? Well, then they succeed and the door opens and no one's there. No one's there to greet them. And when two holographic characters leave the holodeck, <laughs> no one is there for, uh, and I wrote it down, 22 solid seconds. And that's just from the time they go outside until they finally fade. Yelling, I might add, and no one notices this. Now, I, watching this movie with analysis mode, I noticed one thing that I've never noticed when I was a kid, and that's the fact that Picard makes special mention of the second exit to the holodeck, which he tells Data to go check. Now, that's relevant because this is the only time ever I checked where the holodecks on the Enterprise have two exits. In 100% of the other circumstances, there's one exit. Now... That's not quite my nitpick, although it is a nitpicky situation. Why did just the exit that nobody was at open, and they spend however many minutes just walking out of it leisurely? Here's the other point, though. They know that they're in here. Remember, the Haradan are an immediate crisis-level threat, right? So you'd think that with Wesley and Jordy right there, you'd have at least a red shirt standing around, I guess green shirt in this era, standing around, at the other exit in case it opens, because apparently only the one exit opened, and it happened to be the one that nobody was at. Wesley never gets to see that he saved his mother. Jordy never finds out that they did it. It's just the other door opens, and they're still working away. Wouldn't it have been funny if they didn't realize they'd gotten the other door open, so they keep working and then it closes? <laughs> I mean, God's sakes, people. Then, of course, there's the oft-repeated uh, continuity error of the fact that Red Block goes out, and along with Tweak, and slowly fades. I don't have anything else to add to that. It's an obvious error. It, it, there's, there's no real talking around this one. The fact that they're, the moment they leave the projection radius of the holodeck, and then they slowly, dramatically fade away, is nonsense. The way it's portrayed in every other circumstance ever makes more sense. In fact, there's literally an episode where someone throws a book out a window, or not out of window, excuse me, out of the door, and it just soon as it goes out, because it's left projection radius. That's obvious and duh. And of course, I've of course talked about the idea of the replicator plus the holographic technology, but at absolute most, the only thing that would have been replicated on that person would maybe be the bullets in his gun. That's it. So what should have happened is they walk out, and then the bullets just fall to the ground. If even that, even that might be going too far. So, huh? whatever, moving on.
Then, then there is a surprisingly long and actually pretty touching scene where Picard talks with McNary, who's actually been a pretty cool character this whole time. I don't have much to talk about him. He's a cool guy. And uh, McNary asks some very interesting, poignant questions. Will my family be there when I go home? What happens to this world when you leave? Once again, good concept, never thought out, because they never really analyze or discuss that with the obvious exception of the Moriarty program. They just kind of bring it up and then, eh, walk away. However, I'm pretty sure that at this point in history, that can't be used as part of the whether or not holograms are sentient and sapient argument, because this is so early on in holographic technology and holodeck technology in general. So I don't think that's a valid point to be made for that argument. Then, 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 finally, Picard goes to the bridge and gives the speech to the Haradrins. And then it's treated, remember, this is the big super crisis, right? The thing that everyone's worried and nervous about. The thing that the flagship was sent for. The the thing that they were desperate to get to. And, oh, God, what are we going to do? Big tension. And then the tone of which it's treated is as a joke. I don't mean literally a joke. I mean as if it isn't relevant. Picard goes up, gives the thing perfectly because he's frickin' Picard. That doesn't bother me because it's frickin' Picard, the diplomat. So he gets up there, gives the speech, and then they don't say, oh, that's over with, or, oh, thank God, that's a good thing, or, oh, I can't wait to get those strategic things that we care about, or whatever. No, it's never discussed, it's never mentioned, it's just, all right, now let's talk about that Dixon Hill thing we just did again, now that I've saved the ship. It's treated as if it doesn't even matter, because it doesn't. And that brings me to my final criticism of this episode. And yes, it's about the Herodrons yet again. I mentioned that 38 minute 40 second mark. That's the moment at which the doors open. Okay? From that moment on, again, big crisis moment, you'd think that everyone involved would be desperately trying to get Picard to the bridge ASAP to deal with this situation. What then follows is four minutes and 22 seconds of what is effectively meandering. Good character stuff, but still, in, in, from an in-character perspective, meandering. Until finally Picard says, oh yeah, I'll go deal with that, that, sh- that crisis to the ship thing right now, I guess. I guess. I mean, I've got nothing else in my calendar right now. Four minutes and 22 seconds. It's about a tenth of the entire episode for a bit of perspective. Is spent on just taking their sweet time. And that's why I say the Haradrums, the Harada, whatever, shouldn't have even been in this episode at all. Like, not at all. You know, the initial mention, the lead up to the Dixon Hill thing, and then just have the episode. So it's funny that what is effectively the first Star Trek episode to introduce the A-B plot problem that I've talked about so many times in Voyager and in B-5, the first time it's brought up, it is the exact same problem that I tend to have with the format in general. Go figure. But, those things aside, I really did legitimately enjoy about 80% of this episode. And I had fun with it. I hope you have too. And I'll see you guys next time.